0: Dollars to Donuts, with your host, Steve Portugal. Welcome to Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. Over the past few weeks, many of us have spent a lot of time on Zoom or on Facebook or Google Hangout or whatever. For work, for meetups, for catching up with family and friends, for celebrations and holidays, and for other newly urgent reasons. I'm not referring to relatively passive consumption of all the new experiences from film festivals to talks, museums, fundraising comedy festivals, musical performances, all in addition to the television and Netflix and Hulu, but rather these active conversations where you are participating, where you are seen and heard. On one hand, we have turned to this alternative form because we must. We feel an imperative to connect with others, to support each other, while also drawing strength from each other's mediated, glitching presence. And in this crisis, this is the only way. And maybe there's even a bit of a trend at work here, because this is just what we're doing now. Perhaps you've heard the term Zoom fatigue, Especially acute for those who are expected to follow a work schedule like the one from the before times, all online, and then find themselves using their off work hours in the very same mode. Because Zoom fatigue or not, this is hard. I mean, it's it's really hard. It's hard when people who can't stop talking for hours when hanging out on a back porch find themselves staring at each other through a screen and just don't know what to say and don't have a clue why that is. It's hard when members of a group have different levels of familiarity with the norms that technology demands, such as knowing to mute yourself so that the video doesn't switch over to you when you rustle papers, even though someone else is talking. It's hard when conveners of our online meetings don't know about these norms either, and don't know the additional facilitator labor required to ensure compliance so that one person can't accidentally stomp all over the fragile, emergent communal vibe, and on and on. I went to a professional meetup that included a fascinating recap of many of the technologies over the decades that have tried to connect people remotely over video so that they can collaborate. And yet, the meeting began with the familiar fumbling aloud in search of the sharing screen button, the host squinting away from the camera at a second monitor, navigating the intricacies of the interface while we waited patiently but increasingly feeling disconnected instead of connected. I went to a community meeting where someone gave a spirited musical performance full of commitment and enthusiasm. And I imagine that many of the attendees felt this was a beautiful gift, but honestly, I was terribly self-conscious, knowing that I was on screen myself and had to manage my own performance, my own reaction to something very intimate that I was just not prepared for. I joined a family celebration where one house had such terrible latency, of which they were entirely unaware, that the conversational disconnect spiraled repeatedly into something highly comical and highly frustrating. The flawed assumption that we can simply use this technology as a replacement for the ways we used to connect is more clearly revealed as time passes. As with anything, rather than replicating experiences, the technology transforms experiences. Right now, we the users are mostly in problem-solving mode, and the problems we are solving are mostly implicit. The problem is the technology, but also it's the user interface. And it's the intended use case versus the emergent use cases. It's the social constraints and norms and a whole lot more. And this, this is what researchers do. We don't come with answers, but we come with ways to look at complex problems that involve people, systems, and other people. My litany of complaints is an invitation to both incremental and innovative changes. But those changes have to be based on a deep understanding of the issues, and that's the work. And this is one of the things I do for clients. Well, really, it's, it's what I do with clients. We unpack the hidden aspects of their products, current and future, in order to prioritize their next steps to delivering the kinds of experiences that meet their goals. And this is something I can do for you and your team. And I'd appreciate you reaching out to me to find ways that we can work together. Now, my interview with Julia Nelson, the Director of Research at Moo. Julia, it's really excellent to have you on Dollars to Donuts. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: So let's start talk about the work that you do, and maybe talk about Moo, which is a sentence I don't get to say very often.
1: <laughs> already good for me. I know it's an unusual name. So Moo is an online print and design company. We've been around since two thousand and four, based in London. That's where the company was started, but we have several offices in the US and we operate globally. We're mostly known for business cards, but our real passion is product design, particularly physical product design. So we've been expanding over the last few years into new things like notebooks and postcards and flyers and other fun things you can do with paper. We are a bit unusual, I think, um, in the sense that we, in two ways, in terms of how we're structured as a company. So one is that we're completely vertically integrated. So we control all of our manufacturing and in fact, that is a core part of some of the um, the software that we build and maintain is our own infrastructure for communicating um, with our manufacturing op- operations. And we're also a very flat organization um, in terms of how we're physically structured. So the headquarters in London has tech and product teams, but also most of our online marketing, all of our in-house industrial design team. We also have our own creative team who do all their own photography, videography, and customer services in-house, which is great because it's super easy to walk over and drop in on a customer call any time of the day. So I'm director of research. I've been at MU for about three years and four months now. I started as a head of in January of 2017. My team is quite small. Um, Over the years, we've fluctuated between myself and one other researcher um, up to about four people in total. And I think we've had a bit of an interesting arc as a research team. So when I joined the company, we were more of a user research function. We reported into the design organization, which sat within the product team. And we were primarily focused on evaluative user testing on the website. But over my tenure there, we've explicitly shifted the function to be much more of almost a research and insights function. So we not only handle user research for the website, but also cover design research for physical products. So informing innovation around things that our industrial design team is creating. And then we have sort of taken over a small portfolio of market research as well. So everything from claims testing to market sizing comes within our purview.
0: How did that change come about?
1: Hmm, I think that's a really interesting question. I think it's a combination of two things. One was sort of an internal desire within my team to make sure that we were doing more generative, more strategic work that had more of a role in setting product strategy within the company and eventually company strategy. So it was something we explicitly worked towards in the ways that we worked with our stakeholders internally was pushing towards that more generative research. But also we got really lucky. We had some um, sponsors within the company who really understood the potential of what a research function could be and really championed us with senior management. So we lucked out in that sense. But I think the combination of those two things and sort of over time being able to show people how you can leverage research insight earlier in the design process um, or even more broadly into business decision making, it's, uh, it's been part of just demonstrating the value um, of what we can provide and how we can provide it in different ways across the company.
0: All right. So you're talking about kind of two key factors here. One is the team mm-hmm. themselves identifying, hey, we want to work. We want We have more that we can bring here. We want to yes. work in this way. And then sponsors, people who, you know, were in uh, influential decision-making positions who saw, as you said, saw the potential here.
1: Yeah. And I I think it's not just about potential, but I think I've been really lucky. I've worked with both people who have intimate knowledge of research um, and have worked with researchers before. And I've also reported into I report into someone who isn't a researcher but is really open to sort of having a dialogue about research and the value that research can bring, and then scouts for opportunities for us to move into doing more strategic work that is more about core business strategy, about product strategy, etc. So I think it's possible to have allies who who may not fully understand what you do, but understand enough to kind of be on the lookout for ways to, to leverage what your team can offer to the company.
0: Right. Well, when you say understand what you do, it makes me think about how, I mean, maybe this is true of every group of professionals that have a, a shared practice, whether they're accountants or engineers or farmers, but I don't know if this is unique for researchers. We like to talk about the process and not the outcomes. Mm. I don't know if that's, if you agree with that characterization.
1: I think researchers are people who love details and who enjoy the mechanics of the work. You know, I think most people I know who get into research love the process because that's part of what fulfills them. So we naturally gravitate towards talking to the process. And I think when you're talking to stakeholders from, you know, whether it's people in different departments or senior managers, I think you picked up on something, right? Which is the language of outcomes. What is it going to deliver? How is it going to help us? What choice is it going to enable us to make? How is it going to reduce risk? Speaking in the language of business tends to resonate more, right? It's the how will this be applicable to this challenge or problem or decision that I have to make as you know, the VP of marketing or the, the VP of product, et cetera.
0: And this comes up, I think, a lot in, you know, when researchers get together, they talk about having impact and having influence. And mm. What you're saying is probably the number one opportunity for researchers to do better. But I want to go back to one of the things you pointed out, I think, which is the consequences of doing that. You're describing a scenario where people may not know what you do, but they know what kinds of outcomes you can provide, yes. and they're on the lookout for those opportunities. So it's not, we should get those folks to do some research. It's those folks can provide this kind of information that we need right here.
1: Absolutely. I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. And you've articulated it more clearly than I have before. Yeah, it's the knowing, what. what's this... I don't want to say tangible because research can be quite an intangible thing, but it helps articulate that outcome that it's going to give them, that way it's going to enable their work. So even if they don't understand the mechanics of how the research will get done... And I think that's almost easier for other stakeholders to run with, you know, even if they can't explain how the research will be done or the method or the, you know, sample size or any of that, being able to say this will help us do X within the business, I think is incredibly powerful and persuasive, not only for them, but for them to make the case on your behalf to others. So I often, when I talk about the value of research, I often talk about risk and decision making rather than what specifically we might be doing.
0: So I agree, and then I feel anxious when ah, I say that I agree. Okay. And so some of this is just I can make statements like, as researchers, we, and I may just be talking about myself <laughs> or what my bad habits are. But I don't know, maybe we can just dig into this. Sure. The, the framing here, because I feel like I or researchers, you know, we do talk about the details of the process as a way to. I and mean, sometimes we talk, we call this quality, or sometimes we call it, yeah. Uh, Rigor. Mm. So as a researcher, you know how to make process decisions that will get to the right outcomes. Yes. And I think we're often given requests that include process details. Ah, yeah. Um, Here's the kind of people we want you to talk to. Here's Mm -hmm. how many. Here's how quickly. Here's what we want you to do with them. Sure. And so you can find yourself pulled into a process discussion. If we don't do this, then we're obviously setting people up to be Give us favorable responses this way. You know, that's mm-hmm. the, yeah. the kind of guidance that we're asked to provide. Absolutely. So what's my question for you? My <laughs> question is, and maybe you're just describing a more mature state where mm. you're not having those conversations where, the, you know, the request is for outcomes and the responsibility for process decision falls to you.
1: So I said that not to negate process, and I I think I'm speaking to more of the advocacy around research. So I think arming people to speak to the outcomes that we can provide to make the case for the role that we can play within the organization is a different thing from speaking of what are the goals of research and the process behind it. So I didn't say that to negate um, the importance of, of the process aspect. Yeah. I think that's been one of our successes um, over my time there is we actually have gotten people to to let go of process a little bit. We certainly get pressure around time. That's sort of um, everyone always needs their insights yesterday and we have to manage that as researchers. But I think I had a just to illustrate it. Um, I think that's one of our successes within the culture. So I was in a meeting where another researcher was talking a group of stakeholders through sort of brainstorming around you know the research objectives and the research questions, and then spoke a bit to potential process. And I'm someone, if you say the word ethnography, I get really excited. So I started geeking out and every single stakeholder in that room who was not a researcher turned around and said, Julia, you lecture us about not prescribing process. You're not allowed to prescribe process here. So we've kind of managed to at least train them a little bit to let go of trying to design the process for us um, and to trust that we're going to walk them through how and why we chose the approach If we need to go for something leaner, where we're making decisions about how to take a leaner approach, et cetera. And I think that's been a bit of a cultural win on our part.
0: I note that you don't keep them out of the loop around the process.
1: Absolutely not. The more they're in the process, the better. Not only, you know, just keeping, we walk them through the research design, but we try to engage our stakeholders as much as possible in the process. Here I'm going to generalize the community, but there's so much power in having those stakeholders in the room. So as much as possible, we try to encourage them to get involved.
0: I mean, yeah, I think you're, you're identifying, it's not a contradiction, but it's an interesting challenge. And maybe this is why we're not, it's not accountancy or some other profession. Cause you, you're very clear. Yeah. This isn't a black box it's not we want these outcomes okay we'll go get them for you and yes to to collaborate and have them participate helps the results as you talk about this education process it has clarified where the responsibilities are where the what your value add is here what your unique skill set is
1: absolutely absolutely
0: is in being able to plan how to best meet their goals yeah I feel like we're hearing, you know, the evolution towards a really strong positioning, which is still collaborative and still engaging, but is relieving them of the responsibility, relieving stakeholders of the responsibility for things that just or make their job harder and that are actually within your skill set.
1: Yeah. And, and it's not been instant. It's definitely come over time. It's definitely a trust that we had to build. And also, you know, a lot of the stakeholders who we work with in different parts of the company, we've now been working with them for one or two or three years. So we've managed to, they've seen enough of the process and they've seen enough of our decision making. And we've walked them through a lot of that to, I think, have a level of, of confidence that we're going to define something that is that is rigorous and will deliver what they need to know. So it's, it's an earned trust. It's not an instant trust. And people are still anxious about process. Um, I think we, we try and take time to explain why we're taking the approach that we're taking, why we're not considering something else or why we feel this is the best option. Um, so I think really speaking to that, why, why have we made these choices is really helpful in building their confidence around our decision-making around how we design the work that we do.
0: And does this dynamic, the trust that you're earning, and then how you you know take ownership of getting towards outcomes, but you engage them in that? Yeah. Is that do you, do you see variations? I mean, so in, in our conversation so far, you've described a range of types of business that the organization has, and yeah. different and and different work that you're doing towards those. So yeah. you know, how might it be different if you're working on the industrial design of a of a notebook sure. versus maybe something more strategic versus something on the website, et cetera, et cetera? Does that lead to variations in in what we're talking about?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think I think there there's different cultures within a company, right? And there's different points at which people start in their understanding of design and of design or user research. So. I think we have a natural sort of common language with the folks in UX design and and product who have a a specific experience around user research and the role that it can play in, in product development, whereas the language... That I speak with industrial designers is sort of we have a similar understanding of process from in terms of a, of the framework of design thinking and the need for sort of deep customer empathy to inform your ideation and prototyping, etc. But a lot of industrial designers don't necessarily come from a human centered design background. So, even within our industrial design team, they have different levels of experience doing research with users of a product or buyers of a product from a market research perspective. So, you know, there's different sort of pockets of education that need to happen there about how do we translate what we're understanding into choices about form and the tactical experience of a product, which are different conversations than I would be having elsewhere, partially because of subject matter, but also because they're starting with a different understanding of some of the basics of human-centered design, et cetera, and how it plays out in practice. Whereas on the market research side, you know, they have, there's parts of the company that are much more used to market research, surveys, focus groups, et cetera, which isn't necessarily what we do, um, although it's parallel in some ways. Many of the techniques that we use are also used in more market research. But, you know, their understanding of what research is and how it can be used and, and what do you get, what's the insight you get out of it is, is entirely different from the industrial designers and the product design portion of the company. So I think we have different conversations and also different challenges with those different cultures within the company in terms of how we communicate and advocate for what we do and also speak to the limitations <laughs> of, what we, of what we can deliver.
0: So I'm thinking about maybe two dimensions here. One is time, and you've kind of talked about yes. you know the earned trust over time, and the other is maybe the, the horizontal axis of in the the chart. I'm waving my hands to illustrate.
1: <laughs> uh, <you> know, time <laughs> yeah, one
0: way. Maybe I, now I've screwed it up because time should be horizontal, and the the different parts of the organization that that have different cultures and sort of think differently about it, and so you approach each of them differently. And this is all evolving over time. So in any particular moment where you and your team have to bring something different to bear, maybe more patience or uh, Mm -hmm. simplification or more speed and more camaraderie or kind of shared language as you said. Yeah. Do you have a way of keeping that all in balance or you know the word that comes to mind for me is around patience but that's that's overlaying my <laughs> what your experience is. There's probably an optimum situation here these people are the yeah. easiest to work with and they have been for the longest. <laughs> yeah you know once you've tasted that and sort of you know achieved something you know like a micro nirvana for the researcher's role Mm. you know how do you remember how do you create for yourself the long view I mean you've been doing this for a few years in this organization Mm. how do you kind of put the individual experiences in context of that long view that you've been working towards
1: oh that's a tricky question tell me more about what you mean by long view
0: you're describing a, a change over time. When you talk about earned mm-hmm. trust, that means yeah. at at point in time, A, there's going to be more stress or concern in the parties that yeah. are collaborating. And mm-hmm. you might be thinking, yeah, I'm here right now with this team and I want to get mm. somewhere else with this team in the future. And I mean, you're, you're kind of, and when you say earned trust, it yeah. makes me think there's not a shortcut. You have to no. work and kind of get better and get better and get better.
1: Yeah. Well, I think sometimes it's just about a lack of experience with research. It's it's sometimes hard to to visualize what something can tell you before you've you've been through it. So, I'm trying to think about how we've tackled this. I mean, I think we're lucky in that one victory makes you com- more confident about the next victory. <laughs> but I think I think what helps me is putting it in the perspective of the field as a whole. And I talked to a lot of designers about this, which is that in some ways design, while also very old, is a very young function for many companies. And similarly, although user research or design research is an established field and is established in many companies, it's not as ubiquitous as like, as you said, accountancy or HR are easy to understand in a way because they're sort of ingrained in in the institutions we work in, whereas research and design are, I want to say younger, but maybe more amorphous um, for people. So I think thinking about the fact that this is a field that is still new for many companies, that is still new for many people in the workplace who maybe haven't interacted with researchers before, and that it's also rapidly evolving. Um, I think that helps me get a bit of perspective on when I maybe feel challenged working with a set of stakeholders, um, is to just put it in that context of, we have different levels of experience with this arena or this discipline, and that's that helps me step back to, I have to start with the baby steps. I have to start with ensuring we have shared assumptions and shared language and a shared understanding of what user research or design research um, can be and can do. So I think, I think that for some reason, that, that helps me with the frustration to step back to the bigger picture and to put it in context of the wider discipline um, as something that is not as embedded or institutionalized as an HR function. And just to be a bit kinder about, you know, it's it's going to take time to educate people and for people to wrap their minds around it.
0: Right. I think your point about the youth or duration of the field versus mm. in the particular company. Yeah. Right. And Moo, you said 2004, I think, right? So it's yes. a, it's a 16-year-old company, which is maybe for a lot of people, it's an old company in a lot of industries. Mm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you could be a researcher in a company where your career, as a researcher, exceeds the duration that company's been in existence.
1: Exactly. And
0: and maybe the professional life of the people that you're working with. Yeah. Because we have people of all ages working in companies. So if you've been doing this for five years, your colleague may only have been out of school for two years. Yep. So yeah, I think that's a really good point to kind of contextualize where everybody is at.
1: Yeah, and it and it goes both ways, right? I think on the marketing side, there's a much more established discipline around market research, which shapes certain expectations around the nature of the qualitative research that, that we do, which aren't, you know, people come in with preconceived notions of of what research looks like because of experience with that discipline. So it's not always that they don't have experience with the field, you know, they might be younger, but it's also that they might come from maybe a more traditional background or have less exposure to a more agile way of working or to um, to, to the discipline as a
0: whole. So what are ways for people that come up in the design research or user research tradition and people that come up mm. in the market research tradition, what are ways for them to collaborate and coexist effectively?
1: I think it's about knowing about how you fit together. So it it comes a bit back to methodology and to understand that difference between sort of opinion based market research um, and more of the user and the design experience and how they can complement each other. Rather than conflict. so I think having an intimate understanding, and, and I'm still working on this. I'm not a market researcher by training, so my growth um, over the past couple years has been immersing myself more in that field and trying to understand their disciplinary heritage um, and also understand methodologically what can those methods bring to the table and, and where does that end and where does design/ slash user research begin? I think being able to speak to that um, and to have conversations with people about that fit, whether they're market researchers or they're people within your company who kind of need both (laughs) or maybe need one and not the other. I think getting really clear on how you explain that to people, that complementarity and and where one begins and the other ends is really helpful to communicating how they fit and when one is appropriate, when the other is appropriate, how they can complement each other, etc.,
0: so I think you're talking about processes or methods, right? When you talk about complementarity?
1: Yes. Well, knowing knowing what each of them delivers. So you know, my market research is going to give me insight on things like potentially stated behavior and on opinions and that sort of thing. And, and what is it that that can help me understand? And what are the limitations of that work? And then how can I leverage that? alongside something that's coming from more of a design research perspective? How can we leverage the strengths of both of those disciplines to work together? So so yes, from a methodology perspective, but more than Uber level, how the, how those those two things fit.
0: And then how does that look from a team perspective? So we have the activities of market research, and I mean, you can talk more about kind of what your team looks like, but you know, is there a person who I wear the market research hat and I wear the user research hat? that's i think key to making what you're talking about happen is the individuals and how they can yeah complement each other
1: yes so the current structure of my team is is a sort of a mix of generalists and specialists. So we are, we are because we are very small, we are a centralized research function. And also because we not only service our product teams, crews, but also we work across the company. So myself and our other core researcher at the moment are are more generalists. We work across the board um, on a variety of different projects. I spend about 50% of my time as an individual contributor as well as a manager. And then we have a Couple of people who are disciplinary specialists who are who are part time and who help sort of lead or advise. Um, they not only do the work, but they provide that methodological expertise. So we have a, a part time market researcher we work with out of New York, and a very experienced design researcher for physical products who we work with out of Boston. So that kind of adds some of the experience and the methodological. It, it complements sort of the more generalist skills that myself and the other um, senior design researcher bring to the team. They can provide that injection of, of discipline-specific perspective and experience.
0: Now you, you've used uh, generalist and specialist, and this came up in a in a discussion I was in recently. Someone was asking, as a researcher, should they be a generalist or specialist? And it just made me wonder, what do we mean by that? So what do those terms mean for you? Great question.
1: Ah, For me... <laughs> I think it's a combination of, I'm thinking about the two people on my team. So it can be either skill set or experience. So my market researcher has a specific set of methodological skills and also skills around survey design that she brings to the table, which strengthen that element of our practice. Whereas our physical product researcher has a lot of experience thinking about sort of the physical medium of design research. So he brings perspective on what we're looking for from an industrial design perspective, what we need to understand, how we need to explore some of the physical dimensions of those products in ways that are different than what we would do online. So so that's a bit less methodological and more experiential expertise that he brings to the table. So I think it can be in either of those two dimensions. I mean, I think over the course of a career, um, you inevitably become a bit of a generalist in the sense of, um, at least I find that researchers are, are always hungry to learn new things and to explore new methods and to understand how they can utilize them in their work. So I think we all have a little bit of a generalist tendency within research.
0: So I'm going to ask the magic wand question, which is, apologies for asking a researcher the magic wand question. But So if a, a genie appeared and offered to wave a magic wand and said, you could add two people to your team at Moo, ah. how would you start to characterize what you would look for?
1: Hmm. Generalist or specialist? <laughs> you know? um, do you want me to speak more generally to how I approach hiring or more team structure?
0: Well, let's start with how you approach hiring.
1: How do I approach hiring? I think I, and this might be a personal preference, so I, I think that the key things that I look for when I'm hiring someone are I focus a lot on research design. So do people understand, can they elicit the objectives of a project, can they design a process, a project that will address those objectives. That's something really critical to me in terms of rigor: is making sure that people are flexible and adept at really thinking through that aspect to the process, defining the the objectives of research, developing a design that's that's rigorous and effective in delivering the kinds of insights that we want that we need to know. And I look for but a lot of it beyond that. So certainly there's there's core skills around interviewing and observing um, and stuff like that, which I think are more difficult to assess in most traditional hiring processes. But you get a sense of that through um, how someone interviews and how they interact, the questions that they ask <laughs> in the hiring process um, and through their portfolio. But I also tend to look for a couple of intangible qualities. I look for a growth mindset because research is such an experiential field in some ways. Certainly, there's a lot more formalized education around user research than there was um, than there has been in the past. But a lot of what you learn, you learn on the job. So I think having a hunger, To learn, a hunger to experiment, a desire for constant improvement. I think that really sets someone up for success as a researcher because it's that ability to learn something, the desire to try new things that allows you to expand your skill set. So that to me is a really strong signal um, of someone who I want to have on my team because of the potential for growth that they bring to the table. I also look for people who... I think this comes back to it but who but who turn failure into learning so th- this is a bit of growth mindset as well but who can show me that they've taken something applied it and improved their practice and then I think someone who can adapt who's flexible when it comes to methodology who can think through practical challenges like what happens if i have t- half the time and half the money <laughs> and can adapt their approach to um to those constraints um and then stakeholder management is the last one is this someone who has dealt with challenging stakeholders, even if it's not in a research context, but who has sort of the emotional intelligence to think through, how do I meet this person where they are? How do I build a relationship with this person? How do I educate and advocate with them for for how research can play a role in in the work that they do day to day? So I look for kind of those three things, growth mindset, ability to learn from failure, stakeholder management, um, and adaptability.
0: So for those last four, how are people communicating that to you? How, is, how do you find that from somebody?
1: It's a lot of behavioral interviewing. It's a lot of talking about past experiences and how they've dealt with past situations, even if, again, it's not necessarily in a research, research traditional research role. Some of it we get to through, we do do task interviews, but they're always, I dislike giving people take home tasks because I think that's a bit unfair. But um, we do do a thinking exercise with them where we talk about um, how they might approach different challenges in the context of designing a project. So it's a lot of behavioral, Behavioral questions um, and a lot of just seeing their thought process about how they might approach a problem that's presented to them.
0: So, the other piece you said we might explore is uh, the composition of your team.
1: Sure. At the moment, it's extremely tiny. So the composition and the structure of my team has changed over time. When we started and we were more um, embedded within the product function, we still weren't large enough to necessarily be embedded in crews. There were two of us for um, for 12 crews. So we had to take almost by default a bit more of a centralized approach, but we did try and sort of service different sets of crews. So in that instance, we were set up more around the product structure. So with different people looking after crews who kind of work on similar aspects of our website and our creation experience, et cetera. So they can build that depth of knowledge um, around that particular element of, of the product and the website. As we've sort of shifted within the organization, we actually moved out of the product function under the VP of strategy for a while. And then under um, the VP of commercial planning and strategy, we've evolved our structure to adapt to broader changes within the business. So Moo's been working hard to align the company a lot more cross-functionally around some of the key outcomes that we're trying to achieve. So now we're structured around, there's three major outcomes the company is pursuing, and there's a an em- researcher embedded sort of at the strategic level within each of those outcomes, which have steering groups um, that look after the outcome. So that person is sort of responsible for overseeing for. Being engaged um, in the thinking and the decision-making of the of the strategic group that's guiding that outcome within the business, um, being able to identify research needs, being able to work to shape that research and define um, projects, and then engage with me and with a broader team to figure out how we deliver on that. So we've moved into something that is a little bit, as a company, we've transformed in a way that has sort of transformed the nature of the team. So... Yeah, so we've got those three people embedded um, in each of those outcomes, or two, and we're seeking a third. <laughs> and then the specialist support kind of sits across all three of those. So for our part-timers who work on sort of quantitative market research um, and our physical product researcher, they they service the needs or they work with the researcher who's sort of leading the work for each of those outcomes to to deliver what we need to.
0: So the person that's embedded in one of these outcome groups, they're involved in planning, assessing what research needs to be done and, and planning yes. for that. Is that the only or the primary way that what research is going to happen gets determined? Is that, is that how it's happening?
1: I would say the majority, but not all of it. So we also get asked to do research by our executive committee. So there are sort of business level strategic projects, which are fewer and further between, but they will make specific requests of us. And then we also, for sort of day-to-day evaluative research, usability testing, things that need to be done in more of the executional side of design, we work extremely closely with our UX design team to sort of Empower them to do some of the research and also to oversee the work that they do or to support them on that work, Um, depending on the needs of the designer and their experience with UX research. There, we help them drive that sort of more tactical aspect of work, or we step in to do that where there's, there's not someone available to do that.
0: I want to go back to something you said, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes ago, when you were talking about understanding the point of view of people that maybe have less experience or just different levels of Mm. experience and familiarity with research. You made the observation that despite its youth as a field, you commented that research is rapidly changing. And I just Mm. wanted to go way back to that and say, in what ways do you see it rapidly changing?
1: I think there's a few different forces of change that I think about. Well, so... Independent of, of your context and what's happening, I think there's an aspect of, as a researcher, you're always evolving and changing within your own practice as a researcher. I've often said to people that I don't think anyone comes into this field as a full stack researcher. <laughs> you don't know all the methods, um, you have different levels of experience with different aspects of, of research. You know, you might be an excellent interviewer, but project management is a challenge. Um, so I think even within our own practices, we are always evolving as researchers. And I also think it attracts people who love that process of learning and involving their practice as they go. I think the other ways that I see things changing are some of them are organizational. You know, Going back to what we were saying earlier about people's understanding of design and research or innovation, there's a cultural evolution that happens within companies with their experience with those fields. So I I think as you mature within an organization, that also feels like a source of change. And then I think... You know, technology wise, we're moving into new technologies, into voice, into um, AI, into these new areas. And sorry, not Bitcoin. (laughs) I'm completely blanking on what the Bitcoin technology is. I'm so sorry. Blockchain. Blockchain. So, understanding these new contexts and these new interactions is another source of change and evolution in our discipline. Learning to how our work applies or can can enable those things, um, I think, is another continuous education element to what we do.
0: You had this great line that uh, you know, no one comes into the field a full stack researcher. <laughs> So, it yeah. leads me to ask you: Was there a point at, at which you learned that this was a thing, this was a field or a practice?
1: Yes, and I also embarrassingly sort of was very up close to its emergence without really realizing it was there. Uh, so, I did my undergrad at Stanford, and I remember cycling past the D School. Probably a thousand times, and I think I went in there exactly once during my undergrad. So right at the height of when you know the D school was emerging as a voice in design thinking, I, I sort of missed the birth where the the emergence of that as a mainstream discipline. <laughs> I was there and I missed it, but I was sort of aware of design thinking and innovation and and design research um, as a discipline. I think tangentially from that point. And I spent about 15 years in the Bay Area. So I had a couple friends who were, one was a design researcher at IDEO, and the other was a user researcher who um, is now quite senior in Seattle. So I think in some ways I got exposed to the idea that this field existed through just those friendships and knowing a little bit about what they did. And I remember feeling that tweak of interest Um, when talking to them about what they did and what they enjoyed about it. Um, But I didn't. So I always had it kind of in the back of my head as something that I might potentially be interested in professionally. But it didn't really click for me as something that I wanted to make part of my career until 10 years into another career. (laughs) Um, So I I did my undergrad work in anthropology, uh, specializing in looking at the intersection between culture and the environment, um, so, I was always interested in people and how people interacted with their physical environment and sort of used the natural world around them. And then I went into um, sustainability for 10 years, working first as a consultant and then in house in corporate social responsibility and sustainability, where my work. Was largely around doing extensive qualitative field work. So I specialized in community engagement and community development around mining oil and gas and renewable energy projects. So I remember, so I was about 10 years into this career and I remember having a moment when I was working in-house for one of the largest Canadian gold miners in the world. And my job was to go to different sites and um, engage in field work with the communities around these mine sites and really understand the impacts and the effectiveness of how the company was managing social impacts on these communities. And I just remember having this thought, we were talking about local procurement and using procurement to encourage economic development around mine sites. And I just thought, we could be doing so much more. We're doing a lot of stuff that's about managing risk and mitigating impacts, but we're not talking about opportunity and we're not talking about innovation. So I had a bit of an aha moment around that and just thought, I really want to be doing something that's more on that innovation side of the picture. So I went back to school (laughs) in my early 30s, and I decided to go get an MBA because I knew I wanted to do something around strategy and business and innovation. I wasn't quite sure what it was and ended up at Cambridge, which is why I'm in the UK today. But I took a number of classes from professors there who specialized in service design and sort of innovation more broadly. And really enjoyed that. that felt like the thing that I was looking for. And we did a few small design research projects um, in that context. And that that really gave me a sense for, oh, this is a thing that I can do. I'm enjoying it. It leverages all this past experience that I have doing qualitative research in a different context. I think this is something that I want to pursue. And that was what led me to move. Well, I ended up finding something that, that was the right fit or taking a dive into the field.
0: In addition to the experience with field work that you pulled forward, are there other things from other points in your career or your education that you see yourself adapting or leaning on in the work that you're doing now?
1: Absolutely. I think a lot of the business elements of what I did, the training that being a consultant gave me around speaking to strategy um, and speaking to a business audience is something I leverage all the time. I think all of my managerial experience comes from managing teams and managing reports in that context. And a lot of the experience and guidance that I got from other people during that time is something I use a lot in managing my own team now. I did a lot of intensive facilitation work (laughs) Um, when I was a consultant, large um, cross-functional multi-party sort of international working group type of stuff, which I think gave me a lot of confidence around running meetings and um, facilitating decision-making and a bit of that conflict management element. So all of that comes to bear in my stakeholder management. What else? I think all of that. I think it gives me a bit of perspective on some of the organizational and the business challenges that we face as researchers. Sort of like having a, like a spare in your toolbox. (laughs) You can draw on this different well of experience in a completely different field, but that ends up being surprisingly applicable in what you do.
0: And is there anything different about managing researchers specifically?
1: Hmm. I think, I think we have some inherent Organizational challenges. I think knowing what the long term career path is for a researcher seems to be challenging for many of my peers who I talk to in the industry. Like there's the managerial path, so moving into managing researchers. But what does a career look like for someone who is an individual contributor? What does that arc of growth look like over 10, 15, 20 years? How do we help people figure out? what that looks like for them. Sometimes I hear from my peers that there's a sense that what we can do as researchers is (laughs) capped, that there's a limit.
0: So you are having these conversations with your peers about what's the career path for researchers. And it sounds like this is a question mark in the field right now.
1: I think it does feel a little bit that way. Is that, is that something you feel like you've heard from others more broadly?
0: You know, I hear phrases like career ladders, yeah, and and so on, and that these are starting to get defined for research. Yes. I haven't looked at them, mm. and I don't know that I have the sort of expertise to assess them. Mm. You know, and I think about your point about the field rapidly changing, or I think about my own career, where the field that I'm in now is not the field that I came into. Yes field 10 years ago is not the field that I, I don't know what the what the period of that transformation mm. looks like but yeah if you say well what's what is an individual contributor going to be doing in 10 years well it, in what field will they be working is yes like this one
1: yes yeah
0: that i find that challenging and so so i think your point is like that's that's a challenge to manage a team manage individuals on your team be successful because the path for them is hard to to plan for
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, And I think, I think it's also quite individual. And this might be because of the nature of research as a discipline. So if you were working in, say, operations, or in factory work, or as a lawyer, there's a very defined sort of ladder that you might go up. If you're a lawyer, you know, you start as an associate, and you work your way up to partner, managing director, you know, that's very well understood in a very clear sort of hierarchical path. I think for researchers, there's, there's many, the career path might look a little bit less linear. There's certainly like a hierarchy of experience and potentially responsibility if you're on the managerial side. But I think something that I find both sort of freeing and challenging when managing researchers is, um, it's very individual what you find fulfilling and motivating, I think, to a greater degree in the field, in in our field rather than in other fields, because of the breadth of what we do. You know, you can grow in your skills constantly. Um, you can grow into new skills. You can develop experience in new areas. You can try out new methodologies. But Because there isn't a defined career path um, to sort of hang your aspirations on, it becomes much more individual to figure out what motivates you as a researcher. Are you motivated by learning how to manage others? Are you motivated by the advocacy element of what we do? Are you motivated by the joy of learning new methodologies that you can apply to your work? Are you more excited about being able to work in different products or different aspects of the business? Um, So it ends up being... I think it's both joyful and also challenging when managing a team of researchers to support that diversity in people's aspirations um, and to create opportunities for their growth that are going to look different from person to person. So, to make this more concrete, (laughs) I have managed researchers who, junior researchers who've realized that they're much more interested in the ideation and maybe a little bit of the design element of what we're doing. And so, for them, focusing on ideation skills is the thing that motivates them on a day to day basis. I've had researchers who've gone into UX design because they realized they were passionate about not only getting the insights, but the translation into a solution. And I've had others for whom, you know, what motivates them is being an expert. So what they want to do is be given opportunities to master something new. So I think learning to support those ambitions and to carve out. Opportunities that support those different ways of growing is a bit more challenging in our function than maybe in more traditional fields.
0: It it maps really well to what you said about looking for a growth mindset in in meeting candidates. And you listed a number of different ways that that candidate might have shown in the past or indicate currently that they are interested in growing. And I think Mm -hmm. it's something that's That's extended even further. You listed even more ways that someone could grow, and I'm sure nowhere near an exhaustive list. Yeah. You know, when you describe this, it makes me want to create this really awful matrix, (laughs) which is like some grid of all the expertises that that a team would Mm. need given the challenges and so on, so that it's balanced and you don't have – and you have like a bit of everything. Yeah. And I say awful because you made the really important point that this is very individualized so yes. you, you can't put people in those little slots of that grid so your your team ends up looking more organic or there's a different model that comes out of helping individuals follow that yes it, it seems to, hard to plan for or control or undesirable to control
1: yeah, but I think there that's also where the magic of how you build a team comes in, right you know while there's sort of to me, there's more of an individual, maybe career pathing that that tends to happen. It's also about identifying what are the complementary skills that each member brings to that team, and and how do you bring in people who bring who fill the I don't want to say gaps because they're not necessarily gaps, but who add that additional whether it's expertise or skill set or experience that complements the other people within the team. So I think that's where you're not just helping guide people down their individual career paths, but you're also playing conductor for the team as a whole and figuring out how do you bring together those different strengths and and leverage them as a group so that you take advantage of how they can complement each other and how they can fill out your practice as a whole.
0: Is there anything that we should talk about today that we haven't got to?
1: Oh... (laughs) The ideal question. Um, I think I feel very passionately about encouraging people who don't necessarily have traditional backgrounds to, to jump into this field. I think all researchers say to some degree that they don't necessarily have a traditional background um, when they when they come into to research. But I think there's a lot of strength in welcoming people with different perspectives onto your team. so someone who used to be a designer or someone who um, maybe comes from a more academic background or someone who comes from a completely different application of qualitative research. I think there is an element of resilience and perspective that that lends to a team, which is sort of the sum is greater than the parts. And I think that's something that is crucial to seek out on a research team, because I think it strengthens you and strengthens your practice as a team.
0: Certainly, I see a lot of, I'm trying to transition into into UX research. Mm. And what comes after that usually is how do I do that? (laughs) Yeah. You're pointing out that it behooves the team to welcome those people. Is there more? Like how how does the field create that welcome?
1: How does the field create that welcome? I think there's a lot more we can do to create opportunities for people to get their feet wet. So I've started to see a lot more sort of associate researcher. We've created sort of a more junior level within our career level of associate researcher. Something that makes it easier for someone to, to get experience within the field. We've taken on interns or an intern, which I think is is a nice door into the discipline. So I think creating some of those formal opportunities, but I think being willing to mentor as well, facilitating connections for, for people um, who are just trying to get into the field, even if it's just for informational interviews or maybe informal projects. Is something else we can definitely do. And I think also, as someone who came in from the outside, I think it's possible to, I think we underestimate um, how much it's worth really sitting down with someone who has been a re. When you're on the outside, it's a bit more difficult to understand what this role looks like, what the day to day looks like, what are the skill sets. So when you're trying to think about what are my transferable skills that bring value to this field that will help me transition into design or into research, I think just being able to talk to someone who is a researcher who works on the day to day and to have a conversation with them about how your skills fit into this picture is completely invaluable. So I think making yourself available to people who are really trying to understand what this work is about how they can leverage um, the skills and experience they already have. Making it concrete for them and helping them figure out how to articulate that value is a big part of giving them the confidence to take the leap Um, and an understanding of how they they can bring those skills over the fence into research.
0: That's great. It's some very concrete advice, I think, for people in the field and for mm. people that are looking to get into the field. I think that's a great place for us to, to wrap up here. It's been really interesting and, and enjoyable to speak with you, Julie. I really appreciate you sharing so much with us.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thanks for listening. Tell your colleagues about Dollars to Donuts and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Dollars to Donuts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Play and all the places where pods are catched. Visit portugal.com slash podcast to get all the episodes with show notes and transcripts. And we're on Twitter at Dollars to Donuts. That's D-O-L-L-R-S-T-O-D-O-N-U-T-S. Our theme music is by Bruce Todd.